And now, a quote from the director of 1917, Sam Mendes. The movie is not a dry historical movie. You don't need to know anything about World War I. Oh yeah? Okay, Sam. That's not how I roll. I see the past in a flashback. A brief moment played back on a looped track. I'm wondering why the vision's so blurry. It all flies by times in a hurry. The moments when I laughed or I cried or I lost a good friend. A momentary cringe in remembering when. The other day, I was talking with a friend about this perception when you travel through a big city and you look out at the different buildings, particularly the apartment buildings. I'm not talking about the Google Maps view from an airplane. I'm talking about on the street level. And you can see some of the lights are on, some of them are off. Maybe people have decorations on their balconies, that kind of thing. Looking at those apartment buildings, you can characterize them in a lot of ways. How many stories it is, uh, how many occupants it contains, where in relation to well-known landmarks it stands. But in that assessment, you can also marvel that in each window, there's an entire world, lives lived out largely in that space, distinct in their view from the rest of the world, and very much finite. In there is a person who experiences love and loss, happiness and sorrow, birth and death. Through this lens, that person is not just a statistic in a census or a piece of a demographic. And I think in some ways, that's how we should try to look at the First World War. Understanding that in the millions There is in each a life interrupted or ended, a world remade or shattered. Director Sam Mendez again. What I wanted was a kind of quality of dream, but with the status of reality. I also wanted, and I believe this is how to tell sometimes stories and moments of great historic magnitude, To feel through a tiny keyhole into a vast panorama. To use the micro to tell the macro story. I did feel if we could just understand what these two hours of real time meant for these men, we might somehow begin to reimagine that war in a contemporary way. Like... Pick a man, bring your kit. I hoped today might be a good day. Hope is a dangerous thing. You have a brother in the 2nd Battalion. Yes, sir. They're walking into a trap. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you fail, it will be a massacre. Let's talk about this for a minute. Why? 
We've got orders to cross here. That is the German front line. If we're not clever about this, no one will get to your brother. I will. The setting of the film 1917 is an average spring day in that year, the fourth year of the Great War. The protagonists are two British infantrymen, Dean Charles Chapman playing Lance Corporal Blake and George McKay playing Lance Corporal Schofield, are tasked with delivering a message to prevent another unit containing one of the soldier's brothers from being ambushed during an upcoming attack. More on this later, but the context of this is Operation Albrecht, the German withdrawal to the Hindenburg Line to shorten their lines following the Battle of the Somme the previous year. This operation serves as the mechanism to allow for this messenger-focused story, so that there is more open ground than the stereotypically static front lines of the First World War. One of the key features in the movie is that it's shot in one continuous shot from the point of view of the soldiers to capture the immersion in trench warfare. Again, quoting Mendez, but there is something that happens, I hope, in the lack of editorial space. When you make a cut, your brain removes itself immediately from the reality of the situation ever slightly. It's like you are given a tiny pocket of air between you and the image. But if there is no cut, what happens to your brain in the way you receive that information? Like I said, this single shot concept is central to the movie. So much so that when Mendez sent the script to the cinematographer Roger Deakins, this was the only thing on the front cover, that it was a one-shot movie. This also presents challenges to the filmmaker. All the information that the viewer gets is through this single shot. No context informational cards, 
no zoom outs, no jumps to other sections of the battlefield, nothing but what the main characters are seeing. They had to rigorously time out and rehearse the dialogue to last the duration of the distance covered by the characters during any one scene. The movie itself was mostly shot on Salisbury Plain, uh, much of which is still owned by the British military for maneuvers, training, and testing of ordnance. During the First World War, actually, soldiers trained there to go before they went into battle into France. Because of this large setting, a lot of the scenes are pretty ranging landscape. The story of the film itself was inspired by something that was told to the director Mendez by his grandfather, a World War I veteran who served as a messenger. Mendez tells a story in an interview about how his grandfather exhibited behavioral tics that went back to the First World War and that he had carried that with him the rest of his life. He said that one of these tics was that he would wash his hands incessantly and for a long time. When uh, Sam Mendez, the director, asked his father why his grandfather acted that way, he was told it was because he remembers the mud of the trenches when he could never get clean. During the First World War, battlefield communications were rudimentary at best, and reaching frontline units, especially when on the move, was dicey. During static periods, the units were able to utilize phone lines that directly connected them to headquarters. But wire was often damaged by artillery fire. Units could send messages back to headquarters via carrier pigeons, uh, and actually this is shown pretty distinctly in the movie The Lost Battalion, because that's actually how they got the information back to their unit in real life. But carrier pigeons are only one-directional because they only return to their roost. Wireless, as the early radios were called, was still fairly primitive at the time and unreliable, and the wireless sets were not well adapted to frontline use. During the invasion of Gallipoli, the British tried to use spotter aircraft to direct naval gunfire, but with no radios, those aircraft had to fly back over the ships and drop handwritten notes, which is definitely not the most effective way to retarget artillery. Very often during the First World War, commanders reverted to the oldest forms of sending messages during warfare, a soldier on foot. I remember a guide one time when I was at the Gettysburg battlefield talking about how people would always ask him, about how dominant a tank or a machine gun would be during the Civil War. And his response was very interesting and telling from a battlefield communications standpoint because he said that more dominant than any one of those weapons would be a good set of walkie-talkies to talk amongst the commanders. You can think of the messenger-focused story of 1917 as Sam and Frodo bringing the ring to Mordor in one day, which of course, could have been done if they'd just been carried there by Gandalf's eagles. All joking aside, it is appropriate to bring Tolkien into this, as he, in part, drew on his experience in the Western Front when explaining the stories of the Lord of the Rings, and especially in creating Mordor. 
to further go down the Lord of the Rings rabbit hole, Peter Jackson, the director of the Lord of the Rings films, made an absolutely exemplary documentary called They Shall Not Grow Old that I would highly recommend to anyone who's even vaguely interested in the First World War. What Jackson and his team did was they took archival footage, the stuff that maybe we've seen clips of where it's very, um, the timing seems off, it's pretty herky-jerky, the quality of the video is pretty poor, and obviously there's no sound. And what they did was they um, corrected the timing of these films to make the people look like they were moving around more naturally and at regular time. And they also colorized some of the images and they repaired some of the images as well. And they also added audio on top. And all of this makes for a much more real impression of the First World War, whereas I think sometimes we see it as just something that happened way in the past that we can't connect to. To continue the Lord of the Rings theme, the director Mendez, though, said that there was no Sauron in this movie. Quoting him now, One of the things I felt was very important was there is no baddie. I could have turned Colonel McKenzie, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, into Kurtz. Uh, unquoted aside here, I'm not sure if Mendez is referencing the Heart of Darkness directly or Apocalypse Now referencing the Heart of Darkness. Either way, the horror, the horror. I could have turned Colonel McKenzie into Kurtz, where he would have gone rogue, and it would be about, let's find the guy who's sending people over the top because he's nuts. I thought, no, he too is just doing his best. They're all lost in the fog of war, and none of them are wrong, and none of them is entirely right. And that is the complexity of that war in so many ways. They're fighting people who are struggling and doing exactly the same thing. Mendez hits on an interesting point there because certainly in the U.S. mindset, World War II is foremost. And it's so easy in World War II because of the aggressiveness of the Japanese empire and all of the terrible things that the Nazis did to make it very unequivocally a good versus evil story. And that's just not the case with the First World War. It's so much harder to do that. It has been over 100 years since the cessation of hostilities on the 11th minute of the 11th hour of the 11th month in 1918. So there are no more living World War I veterans. Unfortunately, in not too many years, this is going to be the case with our World War II veterans as well. You really can't understate how massive of a change from the world of the 19th century to the modern world that the First World War exhibited. Empires that existed since the Middle Ages, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Russian Empire, and the Ottoman Empire were brought from the position of being a major power to totally non-existent in just four years. French cavalry, cuirassiers, rode into battle in 1914 with their distinctive helmets and metal breastplates, almost indistinguishable from their Napoleonic forefathers, except for their firearms. By 1918, technology and tactics had changed so drastically 
that how war was fought was almost indistinguishable from 1914. The basic Napoleonic constructs of horses, infantry, and field cannon were replaced with combined arms warfare, carefully coordinating creeping artillery barrages, tanks, and airplanes. There were periods during the war in the air in the Western Front that innovations in aircraft came so rapidly that obsolescence of fighter aircraft was measured in months or even weeks. The opening months of the war were so terrible in scale of loss of life that it quickly became clear that this would not be like any previous war. Just a little over two weeks after the German army invaded Belgium between the 20th and the 27th of August, 1914, the French army lost 40,000 men, 27,000 of which were killed on August 22nd alone. Like I mentioned before, the First World War is just not as central to the American consciousness of war history as, say, the Second World War is. But not only can you not understand the Second World War without looking at the First World War, but you really cannot understand modern geopolitical interactions without the First World War and understanding that basis. World War I is much more central in the British mindset, where there are memorials to the dead of the battles of the Somme, Ypres, Passchendaele, and almost every village and city in Great Britain. The image of the Great War is mostly one of trench warfare. There was a term called wastage, which was the casualties that a unit would take just for occupying frontline trenches, not for attacking, not for being attacked, just for the normal shelling and exchange of fire at the front. For Great Britain, wastage across the Western Front was equivalent to about 5,000 soldiers killed and wounded per day. Per day. For comparison, from 2003 to 2011, total U.S. casualties in the Iraq War were about 36,000, equal to just over a standard week on the Western Front for the British alone. From the book All Quiet on the Western Front, bombardment, barrage, curtain fire, mines, tanks, gas, machine guns, hand grenades, words, 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 but they hold the horror of the world. Another fixture in World War I imagery is that of going over the top, which is what attacking from a trench was called. And though this was infrequent, it is really a fixture of the collective memory of the First World War. Ernst Younger, a German infantryman, was quoted as saying, Trench warfare is the bloodiest, wildest, most brutal of all. Of all the war's exciting moments, none is so powerful as the meeting of two stormtroop leaders between narrow trench walls. There's no mercy there. No going back. The blood speaks from a shrill cry of recognition that tears itself from one's breast like a nightmare. For most of us living in a cynical 21st century, it's really hard to put ourselves in the positions of these young men where they would go endure something like this for the abstract concept of their country. And really the idea of complete sacrifice for an ideal or country is so foreign 
to all but a very few in modern America. One day, the Great European War will come out of some damned foolish thing in the Balkans. Otto von Bismarck, Chancellor of Germany, the year before his death in 1898. As was often the case, Bismarck was right. In June 1914, the Archduke of Austria-Hungary, Franz Ferdinand, and his wife, Sophia, were assassinated by Bosnian Serb nationalists in Sarajevo. A month later, in a sequence of events that was far from inevitable simply by the assassination of the Archduke, Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia, and this triggered a complex series of alliances drawing the powers of Russia, France, Britain against Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire. Mobilization was the word of that period. This is the mechanism and the time that it took a country to call out its forces and get them in position to execute their pre-war plan. A delay of hours to mobilization could spell defeat, and days or weeks delay would make defeat certain. The problem was is that mobilization meant different things to different countries. For Russia, a country with a vast, older transportation network and large quantities of soldiers, mobilization was a required step to have a credible deterrent. Whereas for Germany, their mobilization meant that troops were within hours of invading Belgium. I'll get into this in a little bit, but really the Germans came into First World War having no other plan. They had to take the offensive. One would think that the populace was dragged, unwillingly, into this war by leaders. Leon Trotsky, witnessing the jubilation in Vienna at the outbreak of the war, remarked that for the people whose lives day in and day out pass in a monotony of hopelessness, the alarm of mobilization breaks into their lives like a promise. Quoting Younger again, We had come from lecture halls, school desks, and factory workbenches, and over the brief weeks of training, we had bonded together into one large and enthusiastic group. Grown up in an age of security, we shared a yearning for danger, for the experience of the extraordinary. We were enraptured by war. During the rest of the podcast, I'm really going to be focused on the Western Front, mostly because the First World War is a gigantic topic that there's no hope that I could cover in one podcast, but also because that's where the movie 1917 takes place. I do want to mention, though, that there were several other major fronts even at the beginning of the war, including the Eastern Front and the Balkan Front, and others would open up as the war went on. I had mentioned Germany's lack of any alternative plans at the outbreak of war, So what was the plan that they went with? Well, it was called the Schlieffen Plan. It was designed to put 80% of their strength against France in the West to knock them out of the war within six weeks to allow Germany to turn and confront the slow-to-mobilize Russians in the East. 
And as much as this six-week objective sounds like a narrow target to us with the hindsight of knowing that the war would grind on for over four years, this was not only believable, but the Germans had imparted a similar stunning victory in 1871 during the Franco-Prussian War against the French. So the Germans perceived this focus on knocking France out of the war as not only doable, but necessary. The German army swung through Belgium and drove back the Entente forces and came almost within artillery range of Paris before being halted by the French and British expeditionary force during the Battle of the Marne. After the Marne and finding stagnation on the front, each side sought to outflank each other, beginning what was known as the Race to the Sea. And ultimately, a static front stretched from the English Channel to the border of neutral Switzerland. One of the amazing things is that fielding this large of armies to occupy that much space was not even something that was possible in previous wars. So because of that, I kind of want to do an aside here for the size of armies. Unfortunately, as much as I want to keep the focus on the individual affected by the war and keep that experience central, It is important to take this higher view to get a little bit of context. These massive armies were the product of full utilization of industrial society to support that many men at arms. Taking a trip back a little bit in time, I kind of snagged some numbers from some battles um, back to the late 1700s. So the Battle of Yorktown fought in 1781 as part of the American Revolution was under 20,000 Americans and their French allies versus about 9,000 on the British side. At the beginning of the French Revolutionary Wars, the Battle of Valmy in 1792, during the War of the First Coalition, the Prussians faced off against a newly levied French Revolutionary Army. Each side during this conflict fielded about 30,000 men. Part of the reason that these numbers were smaller was that it was just really difficult logistically and economically for a country to support an army of any significant size in the field for any extended period of time. Keeping in the back of your mind that when we're talking about the First World War, we're talking about millions of men under arms for over four years, in contrast. The last general war in Europe during the Napoleonic Wars saw Napoleon's Grand Armée, with which he invaded Russia in 1812, accrue to a whopping size of 685,000 soldiers. The total size of the French army at the time was 1 million. That was really an innovation in creating the apparatus of state to bring that many men to the field. In most of the Revolutionary Wars and into the Napoleonic Wars, France stood basically by itself against a large coalition of other major powers. And the real difference was that France was exercising full conscription and fully mobilizing its economy for war, whereas the other powers were fighting the older style of war. That's really one of the turning points. And yet even post-revolutionary France couldn't sustain the Grand Armée in operations 
far from France's borders, as the disastrous Russia campaign proved. So keeping in mind Napoleon's army in 1812 was 685,000 soldiers. Let's look at some of the numbers from 1914. Germany had an astounding 3.8 million men at arms in 1914. Meanwhile, France had 2.9 million troops, and the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, was 150,000. Great Britain historically relied on a large navy and a very small army for its self-defense and protection of the British Empire. This 150,000 men in the BEF in 1914 was the bulk of the regular army, veteran troops, and professional soldiers. By the end of 1914, this small, well-trained corps was all but wiped out, helping to blunt the German advance. The British Army evolved greatly throughout the First World War. We just talked about that small corps of professional soldiers, and again, largely by the end of 1914, most of them were gone. However, the first round of augmentation occurred that year and that was the territorial forces. So that's kind of akin to reservists or National Guards in the United States. Then the next round of augmentation was Kitchener's Army. And those were who answered the call for volunteers early in the war. The bulk of which would see action during the Battle of the Somme in 1916. And the final group was the compulsory reinforcements after conscription was introduced in 1916. Additionally, Britain drew from its vast empire, places like Australia, New Zealand, India, Canada, and South Africa all contributed troops to the Western Front. Returning back to our jaunt through the pre-1917 timeline of World War I, Seeking to knock the perceived weaker Ottoman Empire out of the war, the British, with their Australian and New Zealand allies, invaded the Gallipoli Peninsula in the Dardanelles in 1915. This plan was proposed by the first Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill. When the assault stagnated and eventually failed, causing the Allies to withdraw their forces in 1916, Churchill resigned his position in the cabinet and eventually ended up leading an infantry battalion on the Western Front. His career was almost destroyed, but as you can guess, he came back to prominence during the Second World War. The Italians entered the war in 1915 and began a series of battles along the Isonzo River against Austria-Hungary. Both Austria-Hungary and Italy would falter throughout the war, resulting in German, French, British, and later American troops seeing action on both sides of this front as they sought to prop up their allies. Massive battles lasting months were fought in 1916 at Verdun, 700,000 total French and German casualties, and on the Somme, where there were well over 1 million total casualties. In 1916, shifting focus to the maritime theater, the Battle of Jutland occurred where the German high seas fleet challenged the British fleet for the first time in major battle. The battle was inconclusive, but it was a strategic victory for the British as the Germans never again challenged the British for naval supremacy. By late 1916, the German high command faced a crisis. While the war in the east against the cumbersome and ill-equipped Russian army was going well, 
it seemed far from over at the time. The Russian Revolution starts almost concurrently with the timing of this movie in the spring of 1917 with the abdication of the Tsar in March. But the moderate provisional government keeps the Russians in the war until they are overthrown by Lenin and the Bolsheviks in October of 17. This ushered in the era of Soviet communism. The Americans would not enter the war until April of 1917, also before the setting of this movie. The Germans, however, know that the BEF will again increase in size later in 1917 as the new conscripts from 1916 that we just talked about begin to enter service. As an aside, American entry into the war was a combination of several factors, including the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare in the Atlantic, combined with the discovery of the Zimmerman telegram, in which Germany tried to enlist the help of Mexico should the U.S. enter the war. Getting back to the numbers game, in 1917, on the Western Front, Germany now fielded an army of 2.5 million, 134 divisions, whereas the Entente combined had 4 million soldiers, 175 divisions. And the BEF, like I mentioned, expected to enlarge further based on those 1916 conscriptions. This crisis of manpower for the Germans in late 1916 brings us, at last, to Operation Alberich in 1917. In parts of the Western Front, in mid-March, between Arras and Soissons, British soldiers awoke to a strange sight. German artillery shelling German trenches. Scouts were sent out and found that the positions were unoccupied. The forewarning of a withdrawal had been mixed with some sectors of the British line getting local indications while others were unaware totally. There was much confusion on the British side as to the extent of the withdrawal. The withdrawal itself occurred over the course of five days, with the Germans occasionally counterattacking to slow the advance of the British pursuers. The German army in this sector had pulled back to the Hindenburg Line, also known as the Siegfriedsdelung. Now, why did they do this? Pulling back to the Hindenburg Line meant that their line would be 25 miles shorter. This freed up 13 divisions and 50 heavy artillery batteries. Just for a little bit of sizing context, late war style divisions at full strength were about 15,000 men. So all told, between the infantry and the artillery, this was the equivalent of a full army that the Germans had freed up on the Western Front, just by shortening their lines. It also created the opportunity for the Germans to build a defensive line from scratch, free from the harassment from the enemy, to employ what they had learned over the last several years of fighting during the Great War. The main idea of this construction was to make it as hard as possible for the Entente forces to approach their lines while also keeping as many German troops as possible back away from the lines and enemy artillery fire. So kind of going over the structure of what the Hindenburg line looked like, the first thing that was there was an unoccupied trench 
that was really wide. And what this was was a tank trap so that British tanks couldn't drive over it. After that, there were multiple rows of barbed wire that was shaped such that it would funnel troops into overlapping fields of fire from machine gunners in small steel and concrete blockhouses on hills behind. A full one mile back from the machine gun blockhouses was the first real line, and another mile back from that was the second line. Finally, even further back from that, there were reserves in bunkers followed by heavy artillery. These installations were on the reverse slopes of hills when possible, so that they were not visible to Entente artillery. The reserves would then be used to counterattack after the attackers had been slowed by the layers of defense. This concept is called defense in depth. In the evacuated areas left during Operation Albrecht, roads were destroyed, fields were flooded, bridges were destroyed, trees cut down, cattle removed or killed, wells poisoned, booby traps set, buildings demolished or marked for ranging by artillery as a trap for advancing British troops. 10 to 15,000 French civilians, mostly women, children, and the elderly, were left behind in the evacuated area while 150,000 able-bodied civilians were forcibly removed to serve as forced laborers elsewhere on the front. The cold, calculating nature of Operation Albrecht was just one more indication that a war which had started with much fanfare in the old romantic traditions was now a fight for survival on both sides by any means necessary. As a mark of the futility of the war up to that point, in their withdrawal as part of Alberic, the Germans voluntarily ceded more territory than the Entente had been able to take in that sector for the entirety of the war to that point. Again, from All Quiet on the Western Front. But now, for the first time, I see that you are a man like me. I thought of your hand grenades, of your bayonet, of your rifle. Now I see your wife, and your face, and our fellowship. Forgive me, comrade. We always see it too late. Why do they never tell us that you are poor devils like us? that your mothers are just as anxious as ours, and that we have the same fear of death, and the same dying, and the same agony. Forgive me, comrade. How could you be my enemy? The war would go on through more convulsions of attack, counterattack, and the seemingly innumerable days of the standard of destruction before the final armistice in late 1918. Even then, with the old world gone and a modern one emerging out of the ashes, there was much left unsettled. Ferdinand Foch, who became the World War I Supreme Allied Commander, complained in 1919, this is not peace, it is an armistice for 20 years. How right he was. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the History Movie Podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate it on iTunes. 
I guess if you've gotten this far but didn't at least tolerate this episode, I think you should probably ask yourself what you're doing with your life. Follow us on Twitter at History Movie Pod. It's pretty tough to make jokes in a podcast about a world cataclysm the size of the First World War. So tweet at me there and maybe I'll throw some puns back or probably tweet about some space stuff. You can also find us on the interwebs at www.historymoviepodcast.com. Growing louder till they end the scene I close my eyes to truly feel the ambience I open them and feel the sense of transience have a rendezvous with death at some disputed barricade when spring comes back with rustling shade and apple blossoms fill the air I have a rendezvous with death when spring brings back blue days and fair it may be he shall take my hand and lead me into his dark land and close my eyes and quench my breath it may be I shall pass him still. I have a rendezvous with death. On some scarred slope of battered hill. When spring comes round again this year. And the first meadow flowers appear. God knows twere better to be deep. Pillowed in silk and scented down. Where love throbs out in blissful sleep. Pulse nigh to pulse. And breath to breath. Where hushed awakenings are dear, but I've a rendezvous with death. At midnight in some flaming town, when spring trips north again this year, and I to my pledged word am true, I shall not fail that rendezvous. Alan Seeger